We're working our way through the New Testament epistle to the Romans, and uh, it is a magnificent book, presents our need and God's provision for our need. Especially the first three chapters of Romans presents in graphic living color the need of all of us, mankind. I'm going to lead you through a subject purpose statement for the book that is not going to be projected, but I want to walk you through it. You've heard it once before on a Sunday morning, perhaps. The subject of Romans, repeat after me, Paul defends imputed righteousness. Paul defends imputed righteousness by grace through faith. Explains progressive sanctification. Explains and presents the certainty of and presents the certainty of ultimate glorification. That's the subject of the whole book. I'll say it again. Paul defends imputed righteousness by grace through faith, explains progressive sanctification, and presents the certainty of ultimate glorification for what purposes? Here we go. The purpose of Romans, again, I'll lead you, in order to encourage, in order to encourage the Roman church, the Roman church, to harmonious and victorious Christian living, to harmonious and victorious Christian living in direct response to God's grace, in direct response to God's grace, and in constant reliance upon, and in constant reliance upon the indwelling Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is the subject purpose of the book of Romans. Paul defends imputed righteousness by grace through faith, explains progressive sanctification, and presents the certainty of ultimate glorification in order to encourage the Roman church and us to harmonious and victorious Christian living in response to God's grace and in constant reliance upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. Every book of the Bible has a subject purpose statement, but that is the subject purpose statement of Romans. Another way to look at the whole book of Romans is to see the book as a defense of the doctrine of salvation, which comprises three chunks to the book. To uh, defend the doctrine of salvation, there are three major chunks of Romans. The first defense is the progress of salvation. That's chapters 1 through 8. Say that with me. The progress of salvation chapters 1 through 8. The second chunk of the book, the scope of salvation, chapters 9 through 11. The scope of salvation, chapters 9 through 11. And then the last chunk of Romans, the practical implications of salvation, chapters 12 through 16. The practical implications of salvation, chapters 12 through 16. The whole book, if you remember Zorro, the uh, caped crusader, the three chunks of Romans, the progress of salvation, the scope of salvation, the practical implications of salvation, the whole book of defense of salvation as a doctrine. This morning we saw in Romans 3, 1 to 8 that we are in need of an understanding that God's fingers are not crossed behind his back and his hands are not tied behind his back when he made promises to Israel, the covenants of the Old Testament we went over this morning, and 
the church being different than Israel, the Israel is not the church, the church is not Israel. When God makes a promise to the church, you and me, in the New Testament, his fingers are not crossed behind his back when he makes those promises to us and his hands are not tied on delivering those promises, all of them, to the church. So we reverence God. We have reverential fear for God. We saw that this morning. Now this evening, in verses 9 to 20 of chapter 3, we're going to see three chunks or segments. The first being the charges against mankind summarized. That's verse 9. Secondly, tonight we'll see the guilt of mankind demonstrated. That's verses 10 through 18. And thirdly, tonight we'll see the verdict delivered, verses 19 to 20. So we're saying that Romans 3, 9 to 20, the focus of our preaching this evening, first, the charges summarized, verse 9, second, the guilt demonstrated, verses 10 to 18, and third, the verdict delivered, verses 19 and 20. So let's get started. Let's get started with the charges summarized. The charges summarized. And here we'll look at Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's the summary of the charges against us. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So who is the we of this verse? What then? Are we who? Better than they? The we here are the Jews. The Jews are the we of this verse 9. The Jews are the ones, after all, who had God's special Old Testament revelation. The Jews, after all, were those that possessed the law of God. They are the we of verse 9. Who is the they of verse 9? What then? Are we better than they? Who is the they of verse 9? Well, that is 99% of us tonight. Maybe there's a Jewish convert here tonight. I would love to know afterwards if there is. But the they of verse 9 are the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the ones who were without God's special Old Testament revelation, especially the law of Moses. The Gentiles, the ones who labored under the distinct disadvantage of only having God's general revelation that we read about in Romans 1. Creation, as magnificent as creation is, that points to a creator. General revelation tells you there's a God, but general, revelation, general revelation cannot save you. General revelation can damn you, but it cannot save you. It takes special revelation to save you. The special revelation of God's word centered in God's son, Jesus Christ. And so the we of verse 9, the Jews, the they of verse 9, the Gentiles, the Jews had the distinct advantage of the Old Testament and its laws, the Mosaic laws. The Gentiles had this distinct disadvantage of not having the Old Testament scriptures and of not having an acquaintance with God's Mosaic law. Now, verse 9, however, makes the point that all, Jew and Gentile alike, all are under sin. All are under sin. 
Whether you had the law or whether you didn't have the law, whether you were with the law or whether you were outside of the law, verse 9 says, all are under sin. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All under sin. Which brings us to our title tonight, We All Need a Lawyer. We're all under sin, so we all need a lawyer. Nobody wiggles out from being under the fact that we alike are sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Later in this chapter we'll read, for all have sinned in 323 and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there are four Greek words which are translated as sin in the New Testament. I'm going to just briefly unpack that with you. Only one of these Greek words of the four is referenced in this verse, but let me tell you the other three as well. Four Greek words which are translated sin in the New Testament. First, parapatoma. Parapatoma is its transgressions, specifically rebellion against God. That's sin. The second Greek word for sin in the New Testament is anomia. Anomia. It is lawlessness. Lawless deeds. The prefix a means against or no or non. Nomos or nomia is the law. So anomia is the sin word in the New Testament for lawlessness, lawless deeds. Third, asabia. Asabia in the Greek stood for impurity and ungodliness. That's sin too. And the fourth word, the word is it that is in chapter 3, verse 9, is hamartia. Hamartia. This is the Greek word for sin that stresses failing, falling short, missing the mark. For all have sinned and fallen short. Hamartia of the glory of God. So that it is the word for sin, hamartia, which is used in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under hamartia, all under the charge of failing, all under the charge of falling short, all under the charge of missing God's mark. And verse 9 makes it very clear, all are under this kind of sin. Now I'll come back to the concept of hamartia in a moment. First I want to illustrate these four words for sin, and I apologize to the teenagers in the congregation here tonight because I just happened to pick illustrations that are all for teens, but there'll be plenty of illustrations later in my ministry here about senior citizens. and So I'm not picking on you teenagers, but I'm just using some illustrations from a teenage world that illustrate the four varieties or concepts or slants on sin. So let's get after it. When a teenager commits parapatoma, rebellion, it might look like going behind parents' backs and throwing a party against instructions of your parents when they're off the island. That would be rebellion. That would be paratoma. Anomia, law-breaking, 
your teen not only throws the party when you're off the island and rebels against your direction, but your teen steals the picnic tables from the local park to do that party. That is law-breaking anomia. Asebia is impurity, still with the illustration. Not only does the teen rebel and throw a party against your orders when you left the island, not only does he break the law to steal the picnic tables from the public park to have the party, but he has impurity. Your teen is lying to you and saying there was no such party when you get back to the island. And hamartia, failing or missing the mark in this illustration, uh, your teen skipped out of employment duties to throw the party. He didn't go to work and threw a party against your will using stolen picnic tables instead. Again, teens, nothing personal. <laughs> we'll have illustrations on adults and senior citizens and other sermons. Any of those four dimensions of sin for you as a Christian parent would cause you great concern. But all four of those dimensions of sin would cause you very serious pause as a parent. And it would lead you as a Christian parent to conclude that your teenager is in great need of either Christ's forgiveness or of your punishment. And that's just it for all of us, isn't it? Every single one of us is a rebel against God, a rebel who breaks God's laws, a rebel who welcomes various hidden or open impurities, and all of us have fallen short of all that God is. Now all the char charges summarized is the thrust of verse 9, you'll recall. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's the charges summarized. Both Jews and Greeks have failed. Both Jews and Greeks have fallen short. Both Jews and Greeks have missed the mark. That's the charge. Now from the charges summarized in verse 9, the passage moves forward to deal with the guilt demonstrated. It's not just the charges summarized, it is the guilt demonstrated or proven. That's verses 10 through 18. Follow if you would. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps, that's poisonous stakes. The poison of apps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Remember, we concluded this morning's message verses 1 through 8, that the only proper response that God keeps his promises and we can't negate his faithfulness by our disobedience. The only fair and reasonable and acceptable response to that is to reverentially fear God. Well, here it is again. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the guilt demonstrated. Now, it is worth pointing out that the verses I've just read, verses 10 to 18, they're severe and serious verses. They are serious and severe demonstrations of universal guilt. And they quote the Old Testament 
several different verses. In my Bible, when the New Testament quotes an Old Testament verse, it puts that verse in all capitalized letters. Maybe you have similar Bibles that do that. When you see all capitalized letters in the New Testament, it's saying that what are in those capitals is a quote from the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this particular passage quotes several Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 4, Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7, Isaiah 59, 7 and following, and Psalm 36, 1. It may not be that all of those verses verbatim are quoted, but parts of each of those verses are in this passage, which demonstrates the universal guilt of everybody. What a list. Verse 10, again. Let it wash over you. Let it push back against what you hear and I sometimes hear, that every day and every way people are getting better and better. That we ought not take the gospel of Christ to tribes people in Africa or the Amazon because they have a perfectly fine religion of their own. These verses push back against that. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The guilt is demonstrated by God in these verses. Of course, sin isn't just New Testament, and sin isn't just Old Testament. Sin is every time and every person since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Now, in these verses I've just read, I want to break them down further. I want to show you three things in verses 10 through 18. First, I want to show you the character of the sinner. That's verses 10 through 12. Second, I want to show you the conduct of the sinner. That's verses 13 through 17. And last, I want to show you the cause of the sinner's sin, verse 18. So let's start with 10 to 12. I believe in reading scripture over and over again because it helps me remember and let it sink in. Verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That is the character of the sinner. Basically, the sinner's character across the board is that the sinner is not righteous. Our character doesn't conform to God's standards from birth. Basically, the sinner's character is not understanding with respect to the content of God's will. Basically, the sinner's character is not seeking God. Instead, it is seeking religion. Religion is human effort to work our way through human merit to God. That's religion. Christ didn't die to give us religion. True salvation, as depicted in the Old and the New Testament, is God reaching down to sinners 
to have a relationship with us based on faith in him. That's a big difference. When Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, Genesis 3, do you remember what they first did? They hid from God. They hid from God. They thought they could hide from an omnipresent, omniscient God. They hid from God. The second thing they did was they put fig leaves over their private parts because they sensed their nakedness and shame. Before sinning, they didn't sense that. And so religion is to make your own fig leaves to cover your private parts with religiosity, ritual, and self-efforts. And what God did, he called them on their sin, and then he shed the blood of animals to give them animal hides to cover their privates. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So the character of the sinner is, the sinner is not righteous. The sinner does not understand with respect to the content of God's will. And the sinner is not God-seeking. The sinner is religion-seeking. And it's the sinner's character that is turned aside and away from God's narrow path of salvation. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 13 to 14 said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. The road is broad that leads to religion and making of fig leaves to cover the privates. The road is narrow that leads to faith in God and his son so that we would be supplied by the blood covering for our sin of Jesus Christ. One more thing. Not only is the sinner's character not righteous, not understanding of God's will and not God-seeking, but the sinner's character is rotten. The Greek word which is translated useless See in verse 12, all have turned aside together and they have become useless. The Greek word which is translated useless here was for meat infested with maggots. We wouldn't buy a steak if we saw maggots crawling out of it in its wrapper. It's useless. God says that the sinner's character is useless. It's rotten. It's like meat infested with maggots. It's not a pretty picture. Now from the character of the sinner, we go on in the passage to the conduct of the sinner. Verses 13 to 17, see it with me. The conduct of the sinner. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. This is the conduct of the sinner, and it's wrong from the get-go, and it's wrong until the end. The sinner's conduct is flat wrong. Wrong words, putrid words, lying words, harmful words, toxic words, wrong words, cursing words, bitter words. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus again in his own words to the Pharisees, the religious guys who had put fig leaves on their privates through their own board game rules that they changed for the people not to know the rules. 
to the Pharisees, Jesus said, you brood of vipers, snakes. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It was Haddon Robinson who had it right when he said, our tongue slips not because it's wet, but because it's connected to our heart. Our tongue slips not because it is wet, but because it is connected to our heart. And so all we sinners have wrong conduct that shows up in our wrong words, but that's not all. It's our wrong deeds. The passage depicts wrong deeds, murderous deeds, warring deeds, violent deeds. Again, not a pretty picture. And now from the conduct of the sinner, we go on to the cause of the sinner's sin. Verse 18. This is the cause of the sinner's sin. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The cause of all the sinner's sinning, it's singular. It's not plural. The cause of the sinner's sin is one cause, not a gazillion causes. And what is the one cause of all sinning? You might be surprised. The one cause of all our sinning is no fear of God. No reverence for God. No awe-struck wonder at the awesomeness of God. By the way, a beach is not awesome. And the weather is not awesome. God is awesome. He prompts awe, reverential respect. Look again at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is, friends, the summary and the conclusion statement at the end of the problems which are cited in verses 10 to 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A.W. Tozer gives us a needful perspective on Isaiah 6 and 5 and the awe that should be before us as children. The Pursuit of God is a book I commend to you that you would read and be awed by God. But one quote that is so telling is, infinite God is able to give all of himself to each of his children. Infinite God is able to give all of himself to each of you and me. Proverbs 1.7 was mentioned this morning. I'll mention it again. It stands at the doorway of all of the book of Proverbs, the 31 chapters of Proverbs. By the way, you could read one proverb a day, each day that corresponds in the month. For instance, uh, tomorrow you could read um, August 10th, read the 10th proverb. You'd go through all the proverbs in one month. It'd be a great thing to do. But Proverbs 1 verse 7 stands at the doorway to all the proverbial wisdom from God in the whole book. And you know what it says, perhaps. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if you miss proper reverence for God, you miss skillful living in life. You miss knowledgeable living in life. 
If you miss proper reverence for God, you miss knowledge in the sense of the Hebrew mind. Knowledge wasn't facts to the Hebrews. That's the Greek mindset. The Hebrew mindset was live life wisely as smart and whole people. And the, the proverb is saying, the fear of God makes wise and skillful living in every arena of your life possible. Reverential respect for God. Let me try to illustrate our problem when it comes to reverencing God. If heavyweight, former heavyweight boxing champ Vitaly Klitschko walked into a room with his six foot seven frame, his 80 inch reach, and with his boxing record of 40 victories, 38 by knockout, and he walked into the room with his record of never ever being knocked down in a boxing match, the average guy might say, man, I'd sure hate to cross that guy. But in the next breath, that same average guy might curse Almighty God for emphasis. These are incongruent. These don't match up. God can strike that heavyweight champion of the world dead in a heartbeat. It is God alone who is to be most feared and respected by each of us, not some former heavyweight champion who physically is impressive. People don't properly fear God, so people cross him. People cross God all the time. It's called sin. And all of us are guilty sinners, the man in the pulpit and the people in the pew. All of us are sinners, no exceptions. And in Romans 3, 10 through 18, all of our guilt has been demonstrated. Our character is deficient. Our conduct is polluted. Our root cause for our sin is no proper respect for God. John and Lynn France had a fairy tale wedding in July of 2005. It was on the coast of Italy. Two kids later and three and a half years later, Lynn went on Facebook and discovered her husband secretly had a second marriage performed in Disney World. There were Facebook shameless photo album of 200 wedding pictures of this married man to another woman. John Francis' character, rotten. John Francis' conduct, putrid, backstabbing lies and betrayal. John Francis' cause for the sin of being married twice, knowingly, no fear of God, before whom he vowed lifelong exclusive love for his wife, Lynn. One would think that John France would admit that he illegally married two women. Uh, you'd figure that, but you'd be wrong. John France denied that he had two wives at the same time. He contended that his marriage to Lynn was never legalized in Italy. And John said that his first wife also knew that their marriage wasn't a valid marriage. John, John, what about before God? Not before the Italian government, not before even John and Lynn themselves. What about before God? 
What about that, John? If any one of us can rationalize anything, we know it's part of the human condition. Put another way, any one of us is capable to rationalize anything if we try hard enough. But the fact is that right is right and wrong is wrong, and God makes the discernment. And we all are sinners who regularly sin. We are all prone to lousy character, lousy conduct, and lousy low view of Almighty God, all of us. We need a savior. We need a lawyer. We are sunk without Jesus. The police say in America, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to have an attorney present now and during any future questions. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you free of charge, if you wish. We all need a lawyer. We all need a savior. But we don't just need any lawyer. We need an extraordinary, supernatural, one-of-a-kind, God-man lawyer. One who will pay our debt, not to society, but rather to supreme and holy God. That's the kind of lawyer we need. We need Jesus Christ and what he only can do for us. And so, verse 9 of chapter 3, the charges have been summarized. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And after the charges have been summarized, the guilt is demonstrated, verses 10 to 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. That is our guilt demonstrated. And third, the passage has the verdict delivered, uh, verses 19 and 20. The verdict delivered. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the verdict delivered. God pulls no punches with his verdict for each of us. Number one, the verdict, all are guilty. Number two, the verdict, all are accountable. And number three, verdict, all of us are exposed in our sin. All are guilty. All are accountable. All are exposed. Now what? So what? I want to read you a love letter written by a communist. It's an actual excerpt from a letter written by a young communist to his fiancée. 
Breaking off their engagement, the girl's pastor sent the letter to Billy Graham, who published it a number of years ago. Quote, communist boy breaking off with his girlfriend. Quote, we communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We have been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overarching factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money can buy. <clears throat> we have cause to fight for a definite purpose in life. <clears throat> we subordinate our petty personal lives and selves. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer. <clears throat> and if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing which I am in dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, and my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. It holds on to me. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, looks, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideals, and if necessary, I am ready to go before a firing squad. End of quote. That is, my friends, a very misguided communist dedication to communism. How much more dedication should we have to the lawyer who not only defends us but also pays off all our debt to the judge? How much more dedication should we have to the lawyer who not only defends us but also pays off our total debt to the judge? How much more dedication should we have to the Lord Jesus Christ? Were the whole realm of nature mine? 
that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, we thank you for these verses that tell it the way it is. We thank you that you have rescued us from ourselves. You have given us life where there is spiritual death. You have given us the earnest, the wedding ring, the engagement ring, the promise, the hope of completed salvation in the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells us permanently, indwells us permanently. You've given us a cause that cannot fail. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, Father. Your gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Help us to let down our nets and not to let up on letting down our nets for a catch. Lord, we want to have the highest commitment to you. The highest commitment to you. The highest commitment to you. Thank you that the book of Romans unfolds further to tell us that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and no one and no thing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you the book of Romans goes on to promise and assure us that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you the book of Romans goes on to state that you are working in each of our lives to conform us to the image of your Son, Father. I thank you for these precious people. They are your people, they're not my people. But I thank you that you've loaned them to me to love and to learn from and to care for, to equip to do the work of the ministry. And Lord, I pray that our highest dedication commitment would be to Jesus Christ. Immovable, unshakable, impenetrable. When people meet us, maybe they see it, may they hear it, may they know it by what we say and by what we refuse to say, by what we do and what we refuse to do by what we think and by what we refuse to think. Lord, thank you that you are working in each of us to will and to do your good pleasure. And thank you that you will complete in each of us at the day of Christ Jesus. Dismiss us now, Lord, with thanksgiving, with dedication and commitment to you. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's precious name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for your attention to God's word tonight and go with his blessing into a new week.